All right, thank you very much. This is the third um, uh, week of the series now. Um, tonight we're going to study together the, mainly the, the, the history of the English translation of the Bible. Um, the importance of this uh, English translation is very important for our interpretation because when, when we talk about the interpretation, we, we come finally into the difficult passages of the Bible we will appreciate, I think, the uh, different translations of the Bible, or uh, let me say, um, different versions, because I'll tell you exactly what's the difference between a translation and a version in, in five minutes. Okay, so the difficult passages in the Bible, that's our topic and our goal, but we come today to the um, history of the English Bible. The history of the English Bible um, goes back to 280, remember when we talked last, last week about the development of the canon and we talked about Marcion, the one, the first one who did the uh, list of the New Testament books, actually started from here. Um, in, the two, in, in the year 200, um, the West started to speak in Latin and started also Latin to be the, uh, the language of literature. And we will find the Christian world divided into East and West. The East speaks Greek, and the West now speaks and writes in Latin. The Latin in the West that contained Italy, Gaul, which is France, England, Spain, and North Africa. North Africa, west of Egypt. The, west, the Western Mediterranean, this is North Africa. Egypt was still speaking Greek. And we're, uh, Egypt, until now, considered the Eastern Christianity. We call Oriental Christ, um, uh, Christ, uh, Christians. So still, at that time, was also considered to be East. So Greek was the main language. Whereas in Tunisia, in Algeria, in uh, Morocco, and th those countries in uh, North Africa, they started to talk or speak in Greek. St. Augustine, uh, one of the uh, prominent Western uh, fathers, um, he knew Greek, but he wasn't happy to continue uh, studying Greek, so he sought to get um, everything in Latin. The Latin versions of the Bible at that time were of poor quality, and they, they, they were waiting for someone to come and translate the Bible into Latin. Until St. Jerome came, one of the prominent Western um, Fathers, St. Jerome, around the, the year 400, he translated the Bible uh, into uh, um, Latin. Um, it's a nice story about St. Jerome. St. Jerome was from the West, and he came and he decided to go to the East in order to know more about uh, Christianity, so he went to Egypt, and he was um, a disciple of St. Didymus the Blind, the, um, the manager or the, um, the uh, president of the School of Alexandria at the time. He was a blind man, but he was a, a fantastic man to the extent that Jerome uh, called him Didymus the Seeing because he was so enlightened. And after that, um, um, Jerome went to um, and, and learned Hebrew. So he knew uh, Greek in Egypt and also in, uh, in the east, and he went to Jerusalem and learned Hebrew, and he started to, to translate the, uh, the Vulgate, which is the, the, the word Vulgate in Latin means the common, so this is the Bible in the common language of people, 
and he started to translate this version from both Hebrew and Greek. The history says that he could not finish the whole, the whole project, but at least he um, uh, finished most of it. And uh, the, the Latin uh, Bible is attributed mainly to St. Jerome. So now we have the Greek in the East, Latin in the West. The church in the East was um, broad-minded, so they allowed the Bible to be translated into the common languages of people. So we find Greek, we find Coptic, we, we find Syriac, we find even Arabic after that. The Bible was translated into Arabic after Islam. But in the West, it was a different story. The West, the church in the West, the Bible was in Latin, and he stayed in Latin for about 1,000 years in the West. And the Bible was not allowed to be translated to any common language except Latin. Even the liturgy, the liturgy was in Latin, and that wasn't um, uh, fair and wasn't good. In order for you to know the Bible or to know more about the Holy Scripture, you have to be either an, a very well-educated person or a cleric. Apart, apart from that, uh, other than, uh, than, than those positions, you can't even read the Bible. And even because the Bibles at that time were handwritten, so they were scarce, they, there was no, no many Bibles around. So you have to rely on someone to borrow the Bible from, or you come to church to read the Bible, and you, know, you don't know the language, so you're stuck. So that happened, and that was also one of the reasons that Martin Luther and the Reformation also decided to do their uh, movement because of also that the scripture wasn't allowed to be um, with the people. Until a man by the name of John Wycliffe, sometimes people um, pronounce his name as Wycliffe and sometimes Wycliffe. Anyway, he was in the 14th century. John Wycliffe was the first one to translate the Bible into English. He translated the Bible from English, uh, sorry, into English. He translated this English version from the Vulgate. So he did not go to translate the Bible from its original languages, but he took uh, Jerome's Vulgate and um, translated from it. It was a handwritten um, um, version, but because the church was against translation, uh, he was jailed and he was, even after that, his... Um, his grave was dug out and, and his bone um, uh, got out and, yeah, he was, he was um, humiliated. And after uh, John Wycliffe came uh, around the Reformation, another man by the name of William Tyndall. William Tyndall um, he used Greek and Hebrew manuscripts uh, for the translation into English. He um, managed to um, uh, print 6,000 printed copy, copies of the Bible. At that time, Gutenberg invented his um, printing press, and he did the first, the first, as we said in the first um, um, uh, lecture, we said that the first book to be printed by Gutenberg was Gutenberg Bible, from, which is the Vulgate. After that, the uh, William Tyndall's Bible was printed, and he printed 6,000 uh, copies and he had to smuggle those copies into England because it wasn't allowed. Um, after that, um, the copies were burned, and also himself, um, John T uh, William Tyndall himself, was captured, jailed, and he also burned at the stake for this translation. 
on his um, last day before he, he was killed, he prayed that um, the Lord opened the king's eyes. And that what happened some days later, some years later, that one of the kings of England started to make the translation of the Bible um, legal. After that, God answered Tyndall's prayer, and then King began to allow the English Bible into the church. And we hear after that about Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, that the, 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 the Tavner Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and so on. That too many Bibles came. They, all these Bibles, were just um, revisions of the one that um, uh, William Tyndall did. So revisions of each other. Until the year 1603, this is a significant year in the history of the, the, um, the translation, the English translation, 1603. Um, King of England by the name of James I took the throne and he was a Protestant king. He, was an, he wasn't happy with the Calvinist notes in the Geneva Bible that was done uh, earlier, and he wasn't happy with the anti-Protestant notes in the Douay-Rheims Bible of the Catholic Church, so he wanted to have a standard on authorized version of the Bible, so he gave a decree for the Bible to be translated into English. Every translation before King James Version was done by probably a single person, but when King James I came to the throne, he authorized and he assigned 50 or 53 scholars, 50 scholars, in order to do this, this work. So uh, 50 scholars, 50 translators, to complete the King James Bible, which finished in 1611. 1611 is a very important year in the history of the, um, the English Bible. The, the New King James Bible, still we use it until now. It's a beautiful, poetic, but it has old English. The English of the King James Bible is the 17th century uh, version uh, English, or 17th century English, but we still use it now if, if you cite, if you recite the Lord's Prayer now, you say, "Our Father who art in heaven." We still we still use English uh, um, King James version up until uh, until now. Of course, this um, um, uh, New King James version is no longer uh, in in public use. Although some people now until now they like it and they love it and they 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 only preach from it, but now it is replaced now. But um, many other versions, at least it's replaced by the New King James Version, which is a modern English translation based on the same text of the New King James. The New King James, the, New, the King James itself underwent revisions in 1629, 1638, 1762, 1769, which is the current King James Version that we have now. And then in 1982, it was uh, the, the New King James Version happened, but before the New King James Version came uh, into being, the Revised Standard Version uh, was done in the 50s, in 1950s, in order to challenge the King James Version, and they did, they did a better translation. Just quickly, what are the, the, the most important versions of the English translation that came uh, to the world, 1885, the revised version, and it's a British English, 1901, American Standard Version, American, 
and then the revised standard version, the RSV in 1952, and the 1989, the new revised standard version. It's exactly the same as the King James Old English and New King James Modern English. Revised standard version, Old English, and the new uh, revised standard version is um, a Modern English. And the revised standard version is one of the best. I mean, some people just consider it the best translation or English translation of the Bible, and it's still in use. I mean, we mainly use the new revised standard version. The best thing about the NRSV, it is an ecumenical work. So it's not um, an, a, a denominational work, so it's ecumenical one. So too many people from diff different denominations, um, they did it. And also it is considered to be the best version that you use for academic purposes. If, you, if you're doing um, an academic um, unit or um, a master's degree or PhD or something like that, it is um, the new revised standard version is the best one to use for that purpose. There is also in 1960 the new American standard version and it was uh, revised in 1995. And then the Jerusalem Bible, which is one of the most important Catholic um, uh, Bibles, 1966, and the New uh, Jerusalem Bible, 1985. 71, the Living Translation, 1996, the New Living Translation. And these two versions are evangelical. 1979, one of the most important versions and most commonly used version, especially amongst uh, Protestants, the NIV, the New International Version. And this New International Version underwent some revisions, one in 1984 and one recently in 2011. 1993, the message, it's an evangelical uh, re, um, version, but it's very paraphrasal sort of thing. So it's, you, it's not, uh, it does not uh, confine to the, um, the text of the Bible. It's all paraphrasal. And I'll give you some example. It actually paraphrases everything. So, and adds and subtracts from the actual text um, as he pleases. So it, it, was, it was meant just to explain rather than to be an, a text. Uh, we have also the contemporary English version, 1995, Holman Christian Standard Bible Evangelical, and the NET Bible, the NET Bible, the New English Translation. Also, there is a new one called the ESV, the English Standard Version, and also this is one of the very good translations of the Bible. Okay, we need to, to understand the difference between a translation and a version. What is the difference between a translation and a version? The translation means the language. So I can say English translation, and I mean all the versions of the English Bible, they're called translation, because the Bible is translated into English. If I say Japanese translation, if I say Arabic translation, so this is the translation. But within the same language, I have too many versions. So all of these Bibles in English, the ESV, NRSV, NKJV, and all of these, um, they are versions. So it's English translation, but they are versions. So the version is how the text is rendered in the translation. And, and, and you will see that the words are different and, and also the arrangement of the words are, are different. Now, we have to understand that every translation of the Bible has limitation. And even every version of, within the translation has a limitation. There is an, an old Italian saying, they say, every translator is a traitor. Because you take the, the, uh, the original language 
and you try to translate it and you can't grasp the full meaning of any language. You can't, you can't exchange the full meaning of one language to the other. No matter how much you try, still there are some, I'm not saying about the whole, but some, sometimes, especially with the idioms and the idiomatic expressions, you can't grasp the exact meaning from going from um, one um, trans, um, uh, sorry, language to the other. So there is no such a thing uh, we call a perfect translation. There is no one perfect translation that you can say, okay, um, this is my Bible, especially if it's not the original language, I'm taking this version, I'm studying only from it. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, it's not good. So you have to rely upon, and this is my tip, you have to rely upon more than one translation or more than one version. This is the best thing. And I'll tell you the exactly, exactly the, the differences between the, the versions and the way of, or the methods of translation, and we can choose together. And, and, and that's why if, if, you, if you are now relying on um, some versions of the Bible uh, for the doctrine or for the dogma, you shouldn't try uh, to rely on what one version of the Bible is saying. Um, I'm, I'm talking here about not the original uh, version. Um, you need also to know, we said before, that chapters of the Bible, so for, for example, St. John Chrysostom, when he was reading his own Bible, the Bible was written in all capital, all, all uppercase, no lowercases, and then there was no chapters, no verses, no even spaces. So that's how the, uh, the, uh, the people used to write uh, in antiquity. Now, with time, the editors of the Bible, the, I mean the translators here, they divided the, the Bible into chapters, and that happened very late, that 1205, in the 13th century, the Bible was divided in, into chapters, and the verses even came a bit later in the 16th century, 1565, the verses of the Bible um, uh, occurred. So before that, before 1205, there were no chapters, there were no uh, verses. That's why when we see the in, in, in the lectionary of the church, we can find uh, one reading that has two chapters, for example, or actually there is an overlap between two chapters. Why? Because these lectionaries are older than the division of the Bible into chapters and verses. Even the paragraphs and headings and divisions, they were added by editors or translators. Even also the punctuation marks. There was no punctuation marks there, and the punctuation marks were added by the editors or the translators. Something about that, that, the, the punctuation marks, I'll tell you how the punctuation marks can change the meaning. <clears throat> this is not in the Bible, okay? <laughs> Hope not. Okay, it says here, a woman without her man is nothing. I'm gonna put some punctuation marks now, and I'll tell you how can we change the meaning. A woman without her man is nothing. All right? Right. Let's, let's put some punctuation marks. A woman, colon, without her, comma, man is nothing. See, I didn't change anything, only the punctuation marks. See, the punctuation marks can change the meaning. What do you think? They're, they're completely different statements, right? So it's different. So imagine that the translators or the editors were the people who put the punctuation marks, so the meaning can change. That's why in uncontroversial passages, we have to rely upon not one version, but many versions. 
There is another one, but this is in the Bible. And also see here how the punctuation marks can change the meaning. It says here in Psalm 94, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, comma, your comforts delight my soul. Okay, this is the, the, the normal reading. In the multitude of my anxieties without me, your comforts delight my soul. Try to put this comma not after me, but after anxieties. So in the multitude of my anxieties, within me your comforts delight my soul. You see, comma, just put it a bit earlier, the meaning has changed a little bit. Not that much, but instead of saying the anxieties inside me, I'm saying your comfort inside me. See, just with a simple comma, Moved. So these punctuation marks are very important. What, where, what are the methods of translating the Bible now? We have three methods. In any translation, they will come under three categories. One version use what we call word equivalence, which is the literal translation. So they translate word a word for word. So what, what the original language says, I'm going, I'm going to translate it exactly with its um, grammar, with, that, with, with its um, uh, even the, uh, the, uh, the, the site and everything and the arrangements of the word as it is. This is sometimes we call uh, a wooden literal translation. This is not good because although it's very faithful to the original, but sometimes when you do from one uh, language to the other, the arrangement of the word in different languages will differ. So this translation, the word equivalence, translation is more literal to the language structure of the original text. Translation seeks to produce the semantic equivalence of each word and represent it in the translation. Usually harder to read because you're reading a different language arrangement and um, sometimes can confuse the author, what, author, what the author means uh, with unfamiliar idioms. And I'll give you some examples now. Less interpretive in translation and allows more interpretive options. So when you don't know what exactly it means, it, uh, what does it mean, you, you, it opens the, the door for uh, more interpretation. Now, nowadays, with, with the newer version, they try to mix between the, the, the dynamic and the, the equivalence, although they stick to being very faithful to the text. The most common or the most important uh, word equivalence or literal translations in the Bible is the New King James, and King James, of course, New uh, Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, the ESV, the New American Standard Bible, but the NAT, the New English Translation, and the HSCB, the HCSB in part. So it's a mix between uh, literal and um, um, dynamic translation. So this is the literal translation or the word equivalence. The second one is called the dynamic equivalence. The dynamic equivalence, the, the translator or the editor has the uh, freedom to change from one word to the other, especially in idioms, in order to um, make the meaning closer to the reader of that language. It's much better, of course, but there is a, a, a problem in it because we are dependent on what the translator understands. 
So if the translator, because the, this one, although it, it makes the meaning closer to the reader, but still it, it puts the translator also um, as the interpreter of, of the text. So that this dynamic equivalence, translation seeks to express the meaning of the text in a way that that is idiomatic in English, more concerned about good stylistic English and willing to forego some liter um, literalness to accomplish objectives. Usually easier to read and understand, but it's more interpretive. I'm relying upon what the uh, translator is telling me. So the most common one, uh, uh, the most common version of this one is NIV and NLT, CEV, and also NET and, and HCSB in part. The third one is what we call paraphrase. Paraphrase, it doesn't, it doesn't respect the text at all. He just takes the whole lot and paraphrase it so you can understand. And of course, this is even worse than the dynamic translation because you are relying 100% on what the translator is telling you. I'll give you some examples how to translate idiomatic expressions. I'll give you an idiom. For example, if I'm writing a book in English, all right? Uh, sorry, I'm writing, I'm translating a book, an English book. I'm translating it into, say, Japanese, for example. Okay? And I found this one. It's raining cats and dogs. Translate. Would you, would you choose to translate it literally or dynamically? If I translate it exactly literally, the Japanese person might not understand it. What, what does it mean? What does it mean literally to rain cats and dogs? Right? So you have to have some, some dynamic uh, translation here in order for the, uh, the, 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 the man on the other side to understand what you, what you mean. Or, or you put it as a footnote. This is an idiom which means that in English language, for example. So it, you have to do something because you can't do a literal translation with idiomatic expressions. I'll give you something in Arabic. You know, we all, we, we all say, Kol wenta and this is an Arabic expression. We all it with any feast. If it's your birthday, we, we say, Kol wenta If it's Christmas, Easter, whatever. All right? If you, if you translate it literally, what are you going to say? Every year and you are good, what do you think? Does that make sense? doesn't make sense. But if you translate it as an, um, 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 with, with some dynamic thing, you can say happy birthday if it's a happy birthday. You can say Merry Christmas. You can say Happy Easter or whatever. So you can tweak it a little bit. So this is not literal, but at least you can tweak it in order to um, do the meaning that you understand. So, see what I mean? So what is the solution? If, if I am stuck with either literal translation which is faithful to the text, but sometimes I get obscure idiomatic expressions like that, or I rely upon someone to tell me or interpret the Bible and do it for the sake of understanding. The best approach to that is to have more than one version, one translation uh, in your study. When you study the Bible, you have your own, pick up one, one version, this is mine, this is the one I love, this is one that I'm comfortable with. If I am facing any difficulty while I'm, 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 I'm studying the Bible, I have a second or third and third version that I can um, uh, uh, consult both of them. I'm not saying 
you study the Bible from three different versions, but have one version and also have, you be ready to consult other versions when you start. The paraphrasing, the paraphrasing, they actually, they, they, they don't confine to the text at all. So not a translation from the original language, but someone putting something in their own words as to how they would say it. Of course, you are 100% here relying on the understanding of the uh, translator. And the example of the paraphrasing is the living Bible and also the message. The message, if you read the message, uh, of course, we, we don't recommend those, those versions. We don't recommend at all to study from the paraphrasing. Uh, but if you read the message, the message is actually distorts the, the whole Bible. I'll give, you, I'll give you some example of the message. So this is the, the, um, the, the, the three things. The formal, which is the word equivalence, and the dynamic and paraphrase. When you go right, you go toward the dynamic and paraphrases. So King James, New King James, NASB, RS, uh, RSV, and then NRSV, and so on. So you, you go um, toward the right, you actually lose the literal translation. But when you go left, you become more literal, and there is a problem with not, not understanding sometimes. So the best thing, choose two or three versions and study from them. I'll give you some comparison here. One verse and different uh, versions. For example, this is Psalm 1.1. In the NAS, NASB, which is the literal translation, the word equivalence, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So he uses the word walk here. In the, in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The dynamic equivalence, how happy, instead of how blessed, is the man who does not follow. Instead of walk, he says here, follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path, instead of stand, of sinners, or join, instead of sit in the seat, uh, a group of mockers. And mockers instead of scoffers, a, a better word. Whereas the paraphrases, how well God must like you, you don't hang out um, at sin saloon, you don't slink along dead end road. You don't go to smart mouth college. It's not a Bible. <laughs> so that's that's the difference between between the three the three versions. Okay. So for the sake of um, winning people and make it make it very um, close to them, you lose a lot. Um, that. I'll give you um, something also from the book of Amos. I'll tell you how important to have both of them, the literal and the dynamic one. In the book of Amos, in chapter 8, verse 2, we see this. And he said, God, Amos, what do you see? God is asking Amos, what do you see? So I said, Amos said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. What did you understand here? Why, when he said a, summer, a basket of summer fruit, he said the end of my people has come. Because this is a literal translation, that meaning here is a bit obscure, right? But if we know that with the NIV, for example, being a dynamic version, it says... What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit. 
So here, the NIV, instead of using summer, which is the literal translation of the word in Hebrew, he used a different word which is not in Hebrew. It didn't say here ripe fruit. It says summer fruit. But in order for the meaning to come closer to the reader, instead of summer fruit, he put ripe fruit. I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. Also, he changed this word. So here, in order to, for me to say, okay, that the time is over now, he said to Amos, because the, the word summer and the word um, end are very close in Hebrew, it's like, 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 like a poetry. So he used summer, which is the, the end of the agricultural season. So that's the end. This is the ripe fruit, the summer fruit, exactly the same meaning, but not the same word. In order to say, okay, because the, the, word, the summer is now here, so the end of my people is now here as well, is near. But the NIV, in order to make it clearer and closer to people, he replaced the word summer, which is the, is the original uh, word, by the word, another word, ripe. Ripe is not there, but he put it in order to make the meaning better. In this, circum this situation, it's fine. I mean, we don't have any problem with that. Ripe or summer, it's all right. But sometimes, if you, if you have to use a, a certain word, the dynamic version can be problematic. All right? Now, regarding summer and the end and stuff like that, the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 now learn this parable from the fig tree. That's what the Lord Jesus said. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. See? So he, he's making a correlation now by the, the fruit being ripe and the, the summer is near. So you, you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors, also the end here. So very, very similar. Um, there, is, there are sometimes very ambiguous words. Um, and the idiom in Hebrew, for example, if, if it will be very distorted if you translate it to any other language. You know, there is a, a common um, um, uh, phrase in, in John chapter 2, you know, when the, the Lord Jesus was turning um, water into wine. He was in the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Saint Mary asked him to do something because there's, there's no more wine, so the, the, the wine is, is gone. So we see here, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And this is a very difficult passage in the Bible because, number one, when you say woman in English, that actually implies disrespect. You can't say woman to someone in English, all right? So it, it can't be like that in Hebrew. This is actually a, a, a Hebrew phrase. The actual Hebrew literally means, or it says, what to me and to you, woman. This is the Hebrew literal. And the meaning here, we understand each other. You don't have to tell me. So as if he says, I know, I understand. I will do whatever you want, but you don't have to tell me. That, that's, that's the meaning in Hebrew. And by the way, in Hebrew, the word woman means my dear lady. It's not like woman that we say it in English or Arabic. So it's a very respectable way to address a woman. So the meaning here, we understand each other. You don't have to tell me. So 
So when it was translated into Greek and then also to English or any other languages, the meaning has been distorted a little bit. I'll give you an example what, what different versions render this one. The King James Version, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Oh, woman, because these are the literal, you see, the literal translation, you won't understand the exact meaning. Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? This is the RSV. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This is the New King James, and here you can't see here with the New King James, here he inserted here the word concern. It's not in the original. And so on. If you see the NIV, the, the NIV inserted dear woman. Dear is not in the original. But he says here dear woman in order to emphasize that when the Lord Jesus Christ addressed his mother, he addressed her in respect, and so on. So that, that's, um, that's the, the, um, the translation. Okay? So the message or the translation, the translation, no one translation is complete and perfect and enough. So if you'd like to study the Bible perfectly, you have to have another, a second or third uh, version with you as well. You don't have to read from them at the same time, but be ready to consult another version um, with, it, uh, with it as well, even if you know another language. I usually, we usually, I mean, sometimes the Arabic version of the Bible is very, very ambiguous in some books. So we rely sometimes on the English translation and so on, and, and vice versa. We read from the English and go back to the Arabic sometimes to, uh, to read from it. Now, the last thing about the versions and interpretation, when reading the Bible, do we need interpretation or does the Bible need interpretation? Or the Bible is a very easy book that anyone can interpret it and know the meaning. What do you think? The Bible is a very easy book, but there are very numerous uh, passages and messages that also need interpretation. So you need to interpret the Bible and you need to study the Bible. How can we interpret the Bible? How can we, um, how we know the right interpretation? I will um, uh, uh, give you here the example from the book of Acts in Acts 8 when um, Philip the deacon um, baptized the, um, the, uh, the eunuch. Philip ran to him, to the, to the minister, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? So Philip said to the, to the, um, the eunuch here, do you understand? And he said to him, and he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? So we, we take this and we know that sometimes we need guidance. We need guidance to interpret the Bible and grasp the meaning. Where do you usually get the, Bible, the guidance from? Remember when we said in the first lecture that we received the Bible through the church. So also we understand it through the church. How can we understand the Bible and its interpretation through the church? From the church theology, from the church liturgy, sometimes listening to the liturgy, it's all full of theology and interpretation. When, when the, the liturgy quotes something from the Bible and interprets it, interprets it beautifully as well. Even the icons, the icons here can tell us theology and interpretation. 
the sacrament. The sacraments also can say that. So I will need the church for the interpretation of the Bible. Study the Bible in the light of the church's teaching or the teaching of the church. Of course, that doesn't mean that I will just rely on this and I will not do my homework. Then there are now lots of, uh, of, uh, of um, tools that we can also um, dig deeper into the Bible and, 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 and study well. And when, when we get into the difficult passages, I will show you some of these tools um, that's available in our time. Now, we come now, finally, to the difficult passages. So, are you okay to take one passage? And then, after that, Abuna said that we open the links, and whoever has a difficult passage that we would like us to discuss it together, you can just post it, and then we choose one or two or three, depending on the time in the coming weeks, and, and, and discuss it together. I'll, I'll just get, get you a, a passage which is uh, difficult and controversial, um, and then I'll tell you also some tools, how can you reach to um, interpreting that, uh, that passage. The one that I chose for you today is in Mark 3, 28 to 29. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation. This is one of the, of the verses that we stand before it a lot, not knowing what exactly the meaning of this. What does it mean the, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Any idea? Yes. That's correct. That's that's true, Shri. Yeah. Sometimes he says, yes, if you if you blaspheme against the the Son, yes, you'll be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. All right. So yes, that's correct. So this is that. Well, actually, as you said, that adds to the difficulty. Why the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit has this this status? Any idea? What do you do if you are faced? Um, if when you face um, a verse like that, what's your homework? <laughs> Find a sermon. <laughs> now there is some. I mean, I think I think we have to do some homework as well, and that's important to do. I'll tell you something. When you have a difficult passage, we have different tools with every passage. But I'll give you with this passage. I think in order to, to reach the meaning on, or the interpretation of this, I need to know what is the context. So how did the Lord Jesus, as Sharif said here, why he said, even if you blaspheme against the Son, it will be forgiven you, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it won't. So we need, we need to know what is the context here. And then I need to know also cross-references. Has this part of the Bible been read or said somewhere else in the Bible, whether it's New Testament or Old Testament. So because the Bible is one book, so I need also to find the cross-references. Now, it, it could be the version that I'm using is the problem. So I need also to, to consult other translations or other versions for that. And also I need to, to look for keywords. So if you have your Bibles, can you just um, 
What is the context here? How, how can you get the context, by the way? If I tell you, you have a, you have a, a passage in the Bible, and please give me the context. What are you, what are you going to do? What you should do? What is the context of this passage? I just snipped the, um, one verse or two verses. It's Mark 3, 28 to 29. So how, what, what do you need to do to get the context? Exactly. So go up or down, paragraph before or paragraph after, in order to get the, re, the, 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 um, the story. So what, the story, what was the story here? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ said that? Would say that? Yeah. So they said that he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the 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 um, the yeah, the demon god. All right. So that's that's the context. All right. What about the verses after? What about verse 30? Can someone read verse 30? Because they said he had an unclean spirit. Yes. So why did the Lord Jesus Christ say that it won't be forgiven? What's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here in this, in this part? Because they said that he has or he is um, possessed or he has an unclean spirit. So as if here the, the Pharisees are saying that the Holy Spirit in, in Jesus is nothing but an unclean spirit. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ... And that's, that's, that's an immediate reaction. If you can read, Abuna, please can read it again. He said that because... Or unclean spirit. So that's the, the immediate context, the immediate reason that the Lord Jesus said, you are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. This is not going to be forgiven, not in this age, not in the coming age, because of that. Okay? So that's the context. What about the cross-reference? Is, is the story in Matthew different? Matthew 12, 22 to 32. What do you think? Is the story in Matthew a bit different or the same? Yeah, it's similar. It's, it's, yeah, he was, he was casting a demon at that time in Matthew. He wasn't casting a demon in Mark, صح? He wasn't casting a demon in Mark, but he was casting a demon in Matthew. Right. And did he say... He said that because they said that he has an unclean spirit or something similar. What do you think? What about verse 24? Matthew 12:24. So it's, it's a similar, also similar statement. Although Mark, in the first part, he commented on this. He said that because they said so and so. But this Matthew put it in the flow of the story. But we come from the two stories, 
that he casted out demons and they accused him of casting out demons not by the Holy Spirit but by Beelzebub, the, the, the god of, of the demons. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit according to this? And then we apply it. What does it mean now? Yes, but can you see rejection here in the text? In the text. Sure, sure. It's like a Bible study. It's a. Uh, you know, if you reject the Holy Spirit, you, you are rejecting repentance. Yes, yes, yes. But it seems here from what you have just said mm. that they're rejecting the Spirit in Jesus. And without that, you can't say that Jesus is God or Jesus is Lord. Sure. That means that, again, that's salvation. You know what I mean? That they're saying that Jesus is Spirit, that Spirit, that Jesus is working with, is impure, unclean. Sure. Can we reconcile the two ideas? So it's not about us not rejecting the Spirit inside us, they're rejecting the Spirit inside Jesus. Okay. Can we apply it now? Can we say, if we say that about Jesus, or said that to Jesus, can that apply? Well, if the world says that Jesus is not God, they're rejecting the Spirit. Okay, what about us? Does that apply to us, or we are out, out of the equation? We're safe. What do you think? The, this, this rejection of the Holy Spirit uh, and uh, the rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit still applies or not? What do you think? If someone rejects the conviction of the Holy Spirit, would that still um, considered as blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, according to the fathers and according to the understanding of the, of the meaning of the word? Although it's not what the immediate context here but does it still apply or not? Because of contemplation, it's not a straight... Yeah, but, but rejecting that the Holy Spirit is the one that casted out the demon here in Jesus Christ, it's exactly like myself rejecting the Holy Spirit that wanted me or convicting me in order for me to repent. So we can reconcile both of them. According to the immediate context here, the immediate context says, yes, they were saying that, and the, the, the Lord Jesus said that because they rejected him or the, the spirit that is in him is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. But now Jesus is not on earth anymore. So I can't be, for example, accused of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because Jesus is not here. I can't say that to Jesus now. What is equivalent to this? If I reject the Holy Spirit, but not the Holy Spirit that cast the demons, but the Holy Spirit that wants me to repent and, and convict me in order to, um, to, to, to live the life of repentance, I'm, I'm continuing rejecting him. So the two meanings can be reconciled. One at that time when the Pharisees said it, and one now because I can, I can be convicted or be, be accused of that if I do it. Because if I reject the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I have, I have nothing to, I mean, if, if, I, if I die unrepentant or rejecting the Holy Spirit, there is no, there is no um, forgiveness, is that right? So the two ideas can be, can be reconciled from that. Although, as I said, the immediate context in both Matthew and Mark 
was about calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of the deen. All right, does that make sense? So we can, as a, as a contemplation, or we, we can even say, okay, consequently, we can do that. So that, that can be also done, although it does not apply on the immediate context. Yes, please. I think that it's not, I'll take that back. It's not a contemplation just mm. for, it's very real. The yes. The says you can, in a sense, cast out your own demons or get through the Eucharist mm. by Eucharist, by Jesus. Mm. And you say, no, it can't. Nothing can help me. Nothing's going to help me. Um, then you're rejecting the spirit that, does that make sense? Yeah. And even even if you say, okay, I'm not going to repent. I'm, I'm coming to you and the, 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 the Holy Spirit is is um, is talking into your, uh, to your heart and and convicting you and and, and um, uh, inviting you to come back and and and, and live the the repentant life, and you, you keep just rejecting him. You, you you're not the, the the spirit of God. I'm not going to to go with you. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's I mean I, I put this one today in order to just see how can we contemplate or make um, our homework in order to reach to a, a solution. Very important, and my, I can't stress enough on this one. Please let us have a relationship with the text. So let's read the text um, more and more, because now sometimes we, we just interpret the Bible or contemplate about the Bible without even looking at the text. Looking at the text is very important. So read the text once, twice, and three times, and that will actually... Um, enlighten the meaning and will, will lead us to the, to the meaning of the text. Of course, after that, the next step, I'm going to give you some tools, but also the next step we might find what did the fathers of the church say about this? What did the church in its liturgy and its, for example, the sacrament of confession and the sacrament of repentance, what did the, the sacrament says about this one? And then we get the full picture. All right? Okay, thank you very much for uh, tonight. So please, in the coming weeks, um, if, you, if you have um, something that we would like, it's not like someone will solve it. We just, I think, I think the best thing to do is we sit together and also try to solve it together and contemplate and find um, an interpretation that will be satisfied for every one of us.